Hi, this is Scott Whithoft, and you're listening to No Such Thing Podcast. I have a few housekeeping items. Number one, I have been, for a long time, looking to produce an episode based on educators using TikTok. Not just any educators, but I'm looking specifically for teachers using TikTok in a school environment K-12. I've reached out directly to some creators and there are lots out there who I love, but if you know educators who uh, you have a specific connection to, I would love to talk some more to them. My interests are really thinking about how TikTok as a platform has changed their practice for better or for worse. Is TikTok a tool for reflective practice? What are we learning about educators as creator celebrities? And how does it change their role? Okay, also, it's been a little while since I asked for a few things. One is a rating on Apple Podcasts. Particularly, I'm looking for a five-star rating because those five-star ratings and reviews would be like icing on the cake. But those ratings really affect the algorithm and how the show gets found. And part of the goal, as some of you know, if you've listened for a while, is really about disseminating uh, practice, disseminating innovations across the field that a lot of educators, researchers, folks who are doing this work, who feel siloed in their day-to-day, don't necessarily get lots of access to. So um, so a gift you can give me in 2023, a five-star review. I'd be so incredibly grateful. Here's another fancy announcement. If you are attending this year, 2023's South by Southwest EDU, come join myself along with an incredible cast of guests, all joining me for a live recording that we will do of a session called Research Storytelling for the Digital Age. It's on March 8th at 4 p.m. I hope you will come join us again March 8th. I hope you're registered for South by Southwest EDU it's going to be a ton of fun. I hope you will come say hi. Research storytelling for the digital age. You can always find No Such Thing Podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash no such thing podcast. It's also a good way just to get in touch if you have story ideas or ideas for guests that you want to share. Find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser, or you can always write me a note on LinkedIn if, um, if you're a user. It's hard to know where people are these days. So now for Scott Whithoft, the dust jacket on his book starts, how do you test the future? You prototype. A prototype is anything you make to help reveal what you might be missing. It gives you a chance to investigate what could, should, or would come next, whether you are designing a new product or rearranging the furniture. Discover the what, why, and how to build the prototypes that will help you learn and figure out what to do next, no matter what you're up to. He's an educator, designer, and author with a background in forensic structural engineering. You'll learn more about what that is in our conversation. He incorporates that expertise with current pursuits in space, furniture, and product design. And he teaches and speaks widely right after our interview. He got on a plane and was headed for uh, the Far East, where he is being engaged to uh, teach some folks in person for the first time. 
uh, abroad since COVID and was really excited for that. The reason that I'm so excited to bring you Scott Whithoft and a little bit of info about this book, This is a Prototype, The Curious Craft of Exploring New Ideas, is because it's a book that I bought for my team. And it's a set of ideas and thinking about prototyping and the art of prototyping that often gets lost when people talk generally about what prototypes are and are for. A lot of times in design thinking or design process, we kind of brush past the prototype as something we already know. But whether you're an educator or a technologist full-time, there are some principles and fundamentals in this book that can just be so useful whatever environment you're working in. I really encourage you to check out the book. This is the first of a couple of books from Stanford D School's collection that I'm going to be doing interviews for this year. And I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Enjoy my talk with Scott Whithoft and Happy New Year, everybody. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. So you've developed this love of ukuleles. And I wonder, like, one of the things I wanted to talk about is it's one of the first things that I noticed that kind of hangs behind you. So that means you want to look at it all the time. Um, (laughs) And I wondered if that relates at all to your work in making things work elegantly by simplifying and working within constraints. Wow, I love I I love that potential description or definition. Almost there's like a sneaky definition there of of what an ukulele is. Uh, there is something um, I'll say it this way. I have a the connection that I've sort of inadvertently developed with uh, ukuleles. I, I think initially was due to their sort of disarming size. They're small. Yeah. You know, they're 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 light. They're small. Uh, they're also, if you if you dig into them a little bit, they're uh, they're loud, and they uh, they really deliver for the amount of resources that they occupy. They really show up, and uh, in some ways offer tone that you can't get uh, can't get easily from some other instruments, and like small guitars or like a parlor guitar. Yeah. Uh, mandolin certainly which is a, a, approximately the same size um but yeah i got i got really interested in them uh, you know initially from their size and then uh their history or at least in the u.s you know they have such a long-standing history in hawaii uh-huh. which also has an interesting history within its context of the u.s um and they they're as as well built as any instrument ever was uh, and they kind of represent, like in the headspace, they represent almost like a novelty. In some cases, you can you know see uh, really trivial songs and, and kind of uh, like embarrassingly bad and hokey songs. Right. Uh, you know, like oh, p- play it on the ukulele. Okay, great. Uh, and then there are some of the just the finest musicians anywhere who uh, use it as their primary uh, vehicle or medium. So there's like I think there's a really I love that there's this deceptive range of it can be of the very best instruments and best sounding hmm. tools ever, uh, and it also occupies this sort of novelty range. So it, it has the potential to be the underdog, and 
in lots of ways, always over deliver. Yeah. Um, in any case, there's another <laughs> so, a little bit of a, a winding road on ukuleles, but there's a, a, a well, he's, he's passed away now, but there's a luthier here in um, Austin, Texas. His name is Bill Collings. And a while ago in the early, well, late 10s, 2010s and early teens, he started making ukuleles um, at their small factory kind of southwest of Austin. And it was a weird move. He's a high-end boutique guitarist, guitar builder, and, and just dead focused on perfect construction, details, the, the whole thing. And so there were, at the time, there were quite a few interviews uh, with him where people said, what are you doing building ukuleles? Yeah. What's, why that? And uh, I, he, his responses often were just like, you know, I really like them. And that, I think they're great. And he's always experimenting or was always experimenting with new um, outputs. Uh, and he did, this is the, where I was going with this. He reflected many times, however, saying it actually takes as much effort and work to build one of these as it does a normal guitar. Of course. So basically just like a small guitar, which was kind of a discovery. I, it was neat to hear that discovery from someone who's um, so capable and accomplished at, at building in a, I guess, familiar medium at that point, but like he knows what it takes to build a, a perfect guitar. Yeah. And I think he was maybe even a little surprised, like, oh, these, these might be, these might be easy. These might be fun. Right. And, and they probably were, but yeah, they also require a lot of work to complex. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, well, I'm glad I asked. Uh, it, <laughs> it opens up a whole, a whole interesting set of questions for me. I thought a lot because I know you're very into, to, I'm going to try to say it right. Ukuleles. Uh, yeah. did I, oh, was that close? Um, so because I know you're into them, I thought was what came first, the ukulele or the guitar, historically speaking, and and then I th because we're talking today about in part about your book, which is this is a prototype. Um, uh. I I thought a little bit about like mm, I wonder. I wonder if it, an ukulele was in a, in a way it was sort of an organic like prototype of a guitar, um, but then I I started to wonder whether that's just a novice's perspective on a ukulele, which you know stringed instruments generally are are have a, such a long history, and mm -hmm. um, there's just an interesting sort of way that all of that has emerged into something more complex in the even up to 12 string guitars and electric guitars, obviously. And uh, so anyway, it was, a, it was an interesting way to dig into your subject matter, uh, but also think about you personally, um, because there are a lot of folks talking about prototyping. And I think in some ways that's a wonderful thing. And in some ways I worry about, um, I worry about design thinking generally, uh, the way I do about other things that become jargonized and sometimes lose their their juice, and that's mm. that's part of what I love about your book. This is a prototype, and and also dug into some of your other work, um, making space, for example, is that 
is that there there is something of a handbook here, and huh. I love that it, it. What I love about it is that it takes prototyping from jargon to a very practical methodology. And that's what I'm really eager to make sure that educators, uh, activists, social impact makers have access to and a deep understanding of. And so that's why I'm so excited to talk to you. Tell me about a prototype that stands out to you as one that would prove to non-prototypers that the practice is worth learning. Wow. Oh, that's such a cool question. In some ways, I'm inclined to want to come up with the best answer and 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 think of, oh, we can point to that that one thing and that demonstrates right, right. how and why. And I think there are a couple of I can think of a couple of examples um, that'd be happy to share that m- might feel recognizable and are of a big scale. Uh, there is something sure. like less showy and flashy, I think uh, it that comes to mind in response to your your question about um, I think a prototype that is of value and demonstrates its value at a at an individual level is one is an an experience in which you tried something, you learned something from that, and you've now reconsidered how to approach it or something like it the next time. How did you? plan for a Thanksgiving dinner, just our close proximity to you know, Thanksgiving holiday here in the U.S. Uh, were you trying something new? What did you learn about that? Would you do it that same way next time? Uh, would you rearrange, I don't know, where people were sitting or when events happened, you know, during the course of a day? Oftentimes those are thought of, let's say that is like, oh, we have an event. We want to execute that event. And in a way that's kind of a product and you're hoping to get it just right. There is a, an approach. If you looked at it from a prototyping approach and saying, I'm going to try something, I'm going to rest myself in learning through this experience. And instead of saying, I want this to be the one perfect solution, I'm saying, I know something like this is going to happen again. So I'm going to position myself as a learner, as an observer, as someone who's living with curiosity, and I'm going to pay attention to these details so that I can try something uh, next time or something different. I think classroom teachers, Mm. particularly elementary school teachers who have uh, like agency over a room, um, often exemplify this Mm. where they might put up student work or they might try a seating configuration at the beginning of the year, say, and find out, oh, yeah. actually those groups are too big or they're too small or or wouldn't it be better if yeah. if um, everyone could see each other more easily? So let's let's reposition next week or the next day even. Uh, there's this constant iterative yeah. uh, approach toward acknowledging a question that you have some embodiment that you've made, in that case, maybe a, a seating configuration, and then an experience that you learn from. What was it like for students to sit in that way? And what was it like for perhaps that teacher to say, how did I show up as an educator in the room um, during whatever experience? And can I try something else? Um, I think, so there's, I, I think the, an answer is 
what's some, what's something you could try, what's something you have tried, and what's something you sort of iterated toward. Uh, I think that it's a it's a, a really unflashy way, but potentially the highest impact way to see prototyping in your own um, personal work and personal <clears throat> behaviors. Uh, certainly, you know, a, another uh, pointable experiential example I can think of is, uh, I don't even know if he called this a prototype actually, but uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, um, mm-hmm. when he designed uh, the Guggenheim Museum in New York, uh, not the Bilbao version, but or location, mm-hmm. but the, the first one, Solomon Park Guggenheim building, uh, which is quite famous for its um, spiral, I won't say spiral staircase, but you know, it's it's helical ramp that that makes the structure. Mm. Uh, it's unlike anything that sort of at that scale um, preceded it. And you walk in and, and you think, like, wow, this is magnificent. It's it's. It's quite a thing. You're you know you're in this huge sort of illuminated corkscrew <laughs> building, huge lobby. It's it's overwhelming in a like a cathedral like way. Uh, well, if you if you look back a, a little bit, you, you know some years and a handful of years, uh, there are at least two projects that he designed and executed that incorporate a ramp as the building structure, but at a much smaller scale. There's one in um, San Francisco, uh, which was a a tiny, relatively speaking, it was a tiny retail uh, location, which has basically like one big ramp that goes from a first floor to a second floor. It's a two-story building, and it's all open on the inside. You can walk in and feel immediately, this is a Frank Lloyd Wright building. That... (laughs) I, you know, I don't know the backstory of the finances, but that was designed and built as the Guggenheim in New York was being developed. And I can't help but think mm. that was absolutely what one might call like a, a proof of concept or a prototype at architectural scale. You've got like, oh, I'm going to design and build mm-hmm. this huge museum in New York. It's going to look amazing. It's going to be the only one of its kind. I'm going to try out this retail location over here and see if I could basically pay for that experiment on the dime of that project. Uh, mm. Another tiny one, exact same era. Uh, his son who was a um, personal home in Phoenix, Arizona, or Phoenix area. Same thing. That that home is one large ramp uh, that leads basically from a um, mm. pedestrian walkway up to the main level of the house. Both of those are, I think, are examples of like a proof of concept, uh, a working model, any number of, of terms you might want to use. Um, and each of them is high resolution. You know, it, it's it's not a throwaway to build a house. It's not a throwaway to build a retail location in downtown San Francisco that still requires, you know, work, all of it. But at that sure. scale, you're like, oh, these are these are little trials that inform a much bigger implementation and you could learn from them right away. Like, Oh, what are the details that I could implement or abandon uh, based on what I learned? Yeah. So I don't know, architectural as a, as an example, uh, you know, if one's looking for a, Oh, 
if he hadn't have done those, I bet that building would have been totally different and, and might not be as sort of right. iconic and, and magnificent as uh, it is when we all experience it currently. I think those are great examples. The, the, uh, uh, makes me want to go to the Guggenheim and re-experience that. Incidentally, I, you know, that I really admire and also sort of, um, pity the artists who show there because, because it, it, it's like always, I mean, the exhibits almost always are secondary in a way to, yeah. And it's, you know, it's Structure. tricky because if there's, if there's like, um, sort of rectilinear pieces, it's always a matter of like, do you mount it, you know, parallel to the walking surface or, right. or is it, you know, parallel to the horizon? So anyway, it's always got like, yeah, such quirks. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. The thing that it makes me think of is that I recently experienced a um, sort of a Frank Lloyd Wright-esque um, mm. ramp at the uh the oh baltimore aquarium um and basically you start at the top level and there's just a really nice gradual ramp that takes you down through this tank um where you know all of the local mid-atlantic fishes are swimming around you and in a way what's brilliant it's actually almost like the Guggenheim was working toward that application because that one doesn't rely on the frame that is so typically hmm. um, yeah. horizontal. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it is almost better suited to a more organic experience, right? Where things are swimming in all directions. And um, anyway, so that's what I was thinking as you were, you were saying that about the Guggenheim, I was thinking, wow, that made a really interesting experience <laughs> through a fish tank for me. Um, <laughs> um, so your, your journey into design was through engineering. And I just, I wanted to ask you whether you remember what first made you think that engineering was an avenue for you to apply what later became the skills you write and teach and design with. That was a slightly complicated path. Um, and I, I, I mm. suspect having taught a lot of undergraduate students uh, that many students experienced similar tension or conflict that I experienced um, when following an educational trajectory uh, at the time uh, I was interested in civil engineering and structural engineering in particular. Um, and in order to become a professional practitioner of that, uh, for any number of, um, like board certifications and, uh, trying to think of what the name of the acronym is right now, but in any case, there's a number of, um, requirements, both of students and of, uh, schools who are, um, hosting those degrees, uh, they have to basically take a lot of classes of a particular variety if you are going to mm. uh, pursue that that practice uh, to become licensed as a practitioner. And, and that at the time, as it is now, is still quite important, which is to say you need to become licensed uh, in order to 
sort of uh, grow into the potential of that trade. Uh, not dissimilar yeah. to architects or or students studying, you know, pre-medicine, uh, well, educators as well. I mean, any number of teachers that teach, uh, like learn and then get certified to teach in certain capacities. Uh, so in any case, that was in sure. some ways that was there was a bit of an autopilot uh, uh, route there, which was uh, it was easier to follow those constraints and deviate from them which is to say to pursue other interests. Uh, I didn't even know what design meant at the, at the time. Uh, and candidly, I think it's, it's pretty mm. flexible now even. Uh, but it was easier to sort of take electives or, or, or experiment into different disciplines, all of which I was quite interested in, um, while uh, sort of maintaining this uh, engineering trajectory, which then, you know, I, I, I didn't. I, I, um, followed through on the path i i was interested in and still am interested in structures and how things are made i love physical materials understanding uh the physical principles of materials and then physics like why things connect how things connect mm. why things stand up and and likewise why things fall down uh which i think actually kind of led toward uh Maybe it's slightly nonlinear path. It feels linear in my head, but again, might not seem that way. Um, mm -hmm. I got it was I got uh, interested in the concept of uh, forensic engineering. That was a term I, I had never heard of. It was something that uh, was uh, I went to a lecture in college um, one time from someone who was presenting work about uh, a building failure. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. This this strikes me as uh, basically working in reverse. Like, oh, something was made and something went wrong. Let's look at and try to understand the fullest picture of what we can about what went wrong. And in some cases, draw conclusions on our best guess. Sometimes it is a guess, but or on our best um probing our best experiments our, our best attempts to, to gather some some information and then see if we can conclude or see if we can actually best case like see if we can course correct like is is this something we can save or or yeah. um uh hopefully avert some kind of disaster anyway i thought it was a wow what was that all about i thought that was super interesting and and uh mm. that really I, it was one of those things where you're like, wow, I really kind of dig being a detective. I like there was there was something so unengineering about that to me and yet very authentically engineering mm -hmm. to me, which was every one of these instances is kind of a mystery and it absolutely benefited you. And maybe it wasn't even benefit. That's an understatement. It, it is uh, imperative that you are driven by curiosity uh, and not just for uh, like curious about what is the answer, but curious about what is all the information I'm beholding right now and mm. what can I then do with that information? So I'd say in a way, again, this is one of those instances where you're like, wow, I'm learning these terms, not 
by definition, but I'm learning these behaviors. I would call that synthesis. What, what some, and there's plenty yeah. of great books and, and practitioners in design synthesis. Now we say like, Hey, I've got all this information. What are some, some themes or what are best connections I can make? And, and what are we noticing from, from like factual information that we're then introducing our biases, our perspectives, what we know, uh, and what can we conclude or what, 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 what may we offer and then try from this? That struck me as such a, yeah. uh, a non-obvious like gem within the field of engineering. I thought, oh, that's super cool. So, uh, I stuck with that and that was, that was really interesting uh, and compelling to me. And I, I had a great opportunity to work, uh, with, uh, just some, astoundingly smart, curious, fun, and I'd say brave, uh, people. I happen to that, that work. I happen to be in Austin. I've recently returned and now live in Austin, Texas again. Um, but, uh, just such a, a great group of people that another <laughs> meandering side road, that was a, a great introduction to working collaboratively with people. And, and, and what I mean by that is when we were going to do field work to go, uh, I take measurements to go observe cracks and like really down to like measuring crack widths, which in some ways can be, um, it is mm. as, as uh, mind numbing as it might sound, measuring crack widths in, in like a concrete slab. You can learn a lot from that. But uh, as a matter of practice, we always went out uh, in teams, um, for safety reasons, but then also the underlying, uh, basis of we're going to see an experience sense, detect more things with more individuals out there so that we do have redundancy of observation. Uh, and we do have, um, I say like, a a diminished notion of one person always having the answer or that someone discovered it, mm. so to speak. It's, no, we had people out there who were gathering information and were, uh, with the best of their capabilities, you know, bringing it back. That was not, that is antithetical very often to at least how professional practice is marketed, which is you've got a signature architect mm. or one person's name on the firm. Of course, there are dozens, hundreds, thousands of people that often you know, work and do the work. Um, in any case, that was, I didn't know it at the time, but that was quite formative and, and really set an expectation I have now, even to this day of, uh, when I do work, I often am leading with, how is this going to be a collaborative effort? Uh, and if it is not, I, mm. I often, uh, lose interest. It's, um, uh, yeah, it, and that shows up in design um, uh, projects and collaborative work much more frequently. Uh, back to your <laughs> very, 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 yeah. very long winding road here. You know, cue cue the Beatles. Um, uh, I took a little bit of a deviation from structural engineering to dive into design. I went back to graduate school for um, product design, which in my head. Uh, mm -hmm was uh, like a short circuit to get into art. 
uh, which had, had been mm-hmm. interesting and is a passion of mine. Uh, that was uh, it is not correct, uh, as it turns out. Uh, but in any case, it was uh, I, I dove right into uh, understanding and learning about product design with uh, almost no understanding of uh, product design as a practice. Um, and and what that meant exactly? Mm. I was l- literally saying like, oh, this is a way to to I, with my background or my experience with what I, I I know I can do well, I can put my building skills to use toward art. Mm. <laughs> uh, and you know, some people in in that in that program and kind of in the in the realm, they'll apply you know a a description of like creative engineering. Uh, which is in some ways a disservice to creativity and a disservice to engineering, but there's, yeah, there's sort of this, this blur of like, Oh, you got people who can weld and, uh, they can, they can, you know, uh, they, they know (laughs) color theory too. So it, it all leads towards great stuff. Yes. 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 Well, what, what you say makes me think of, um, education's obsession with, Mm. um, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, which has become a pedagogical practice in and of itself. Um, th- mm-hmm. A lot of people like to say STEAM, which horseshoes in the arts. Um, but my question, and in, in which is your question for creative engineering, is to what extent are we diluting these things in in a way that is a disservice to each of them as as individual um, mm-hmm. practices uh, or ways of ways of approaching the world? Um, it, you know, it's interesting. You in your last response, I think you named two of what I would consider in my top five um, deficits in modern education. One is the way that we've replicated in education the social mm. obsession with virtuosity, uh, the the idea that like things get done from virtuosos and and it's a very uh, well historically it's all over the place right but then it's also a very American thing where like titans this idea of titans is is all over the place and that bleeds into education in all kinds of ways where we we celebrate the the valedictorian, um, and yet what we hear from employers constantly is, yeah. uh, but can they work with people? Can they, can they figure out how to make a team work together? And so uh, the idea of distributed success or distributed progress is not at all a, a <laughs> part of our education system in that way. We know we want it. We talk about uh, we talk about it as a soft skill is the is the nomenclature um, in the in the educational lexicon, but uh, I don't know that we mm. know exactly how to get there. Um, so so that's that's one, and then the other that you named is the issue of the distance between um, between the education in a discipline and the practice of a discipline. Uh, and man, that is a that is a, uh, a a big challenge, right? I I feel it all the time. As somebody who did what you did for design school, I went back to to sort of study uh, technology for education and design of interface and 
um, how things work for for learning. But then when you go to practice building things to put to to mm -hmm. uh, bring to market, uh, a lot of that design practice academically is very hard to actually execute in the real world. And and uh, nor did I know anything about what it would look like to practice that. So, um, so those are some some important ones. I have I have about. Um, 10 new ways I'd love to take the conversation than what I was originally anticipating. But this is part of why I build a, an outline for us is because uh, it, probably the best conversation we're going to have is somewhere between what's emerging and, and what I put down. So let me ask you a question that, that I um, mm -hmm. brings us back to the book a little bit. Um, I've heard you talk about yourself in other in other places, uh, and you just describe this in your life as a forensic engineer, which is, it's really not until this moment that I'm really learning exactly what a forensic engineer does. Uh, but I've heard you describe a superpower of yours as being observation. And um, it makes me think about prototypes. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people make is to think about prototypes as mm. a young idea. Um, it's like, this is the step I take, and it comes back to that that virtu virtuoso thing, right? It's like I'm going to be a, an entre I'm going to be a maker of things, and my prototype is the first version of my my like rich and famous idea. Not a lot of people think about it as mm. an observation tool, and I wonder to what extent you see prototyping through a different frame than other people. Like, do you see it more as an observation tool than the precursor to the next big thing? That's a super interesting way to think about it. And the distinction that, uh, that you made is uh, a super important one as a, like an exploration, like an embodied exploration versus uh, not just even an early idea, but an early solution. I would say it's like you've already got like a slightly mm. premature answer and what you're going to end, or say the output from whatever you're about to do is going to be some likeness of that. Uh, and yeah. I, I think there's a, a distinction that people often do not feel they have the opportunity to make, which is what is you this is myself asking it, what is my role in what I'm doing right now? And what will be the utility of the outcomes of what I'm doing right now? Very frequently, the uh, an easier, I, I would say like a more common route is to say, I have expectations placed upon me by job, budget, title, whatever. I am a widget designer. I've been paid to design a new widget. My solution will be a widget. So in a way that that like very clear through line can unfortunately uh, preclude you from not just deviations in a in the sense of being silly or 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 not productive, but um, taking exploratory measures along the way. It's, it's almost like an improvisational scene. Like, you know, the scene is going to start with this word or phrase and you know, it's going to end with this sort of beat or someone leaves 
out the door. In the meantime, the scene could be anything. Uh, and the, the approach toward prototyping, which is to embody your curiosity around an idea, that mm. can be much less linear uh, and be a, an, I would say, a tool for personal agency that it might not feel, um, that might not feel intuitive based on your job. So I, I do think there's a, uh, an easier way to answer maybe the a part of the question you were asking is in some ways a prototype is an early solution if you're faced with certain constraints that will lead you toward this this outcome. If you are a uh, yeah. app designer and and you're not planning on changing your life or the world with your next output, you very likely may design an app. Mm-hmm. Great. You you already know that. What that can do though is trap you in the app, so to speak, as opposed to trapping you or inviting you into understanding behaviors or why does this thing work? Yeah. Based on what you tried, you know. Um, I, yeah. I can think of an instance that just constantly comes to mind, but it's like a student example. Uh, some student. Um, classes that have a sort of a, a fairly familiar project, which always leads to different outcomes. But there's an instance where folks are redesigning a, a food on the go experience. And um, hmm. with some regularity, uh, students will go and kind of shadow uh, uh, like a food delivery driver, like a DoorDash or, or Uber driver, any number of people that, that deliver food. Um, and they get down to some kind of human moment where uh, like they, they in, even to the specificity of like noticing a moment with a, with a tip, like giving a gratuity and, and then having this interesting discovery that d- drivers or de- um, delivery people uh, see the tip as a, as an acknowledgement of them as a person. So it's not, I mean, there's the monetary value of it, but there's this added thing of, Oh, by getting by actually having the mechanism of getting this tip, there's a tiny moment right there where they're seen as uh, like a part of this anonymous delivery system. They, they, it's like a little human moment. Yeah, amazing. Uh, in in a way, it's, it's a cool nugget for for students to to latch onto and get excited about. And so you'll very quickly see like, okay, well, let's design an app that uh, uh, like improves the ease for giving a tip that jumps right to a solution yeah. as opposed to saying like, Hey, what about going and trying to give a, a variety of tips or not giving tips? Like what, what do you mm-hmm. know? What do you dive into about like why this would work? Why is this further important versus I must have a solution. Uh, and it, for any number of reasons, uh, it's, important that you know gets to a solution but i think there's there is a uh like a taught lesson that students are accustomed to like doing their best work or doing a project showing that work and then like getting praise was that correct was that not correct not necessarily Mm. what are a number of things that you tried and what did you learn like it it, like delivering insights as opposed to delivering mm, an early product uh, and then they often, you know, mm-hmm. seek that. It, 
I don't candidly, it's harder to give feedback and critique uh, insight discovery than it is, okay, you made a product, uh, I don't know, that's B plus work or A minus. I uh, wish you had done four more interviews, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a, this gets back to how one might perceive prototyping or how, how, how one might um, dive into curiosity more fully. It's a little bit challenging. It's, it's not linear because the outcomes aren't necessarily solutions themselves. They are the fuel for solutions if you if you mm. so desire. Uh, they could also be the fuel for a completely unresolved body of study <laughs> for, for your entire life long. You're, you're, you're constantly trying new versions toward a thing and uh, you're not, your goal isn't to monetize that or turn it into a product or, or what have you. I have, in fact, one of one of the ukuleles behind me, I, I also in some ways sort of collect prototypes, what are articulated as prototypes. I have, um, this is a prototype of the run of ukuleles when they first started being manufactured, P27. Oh, neat. That thing for that company was a prototype. They were experimenting, I think, with the bracing configuration on the um, the bracing are like transverse wood pieces on the bottom of the flat guitar top for them. That was a, yeah. Where does this get placed? Uh, okay, let's, let's build one and we won't know until we build it and they build it and they're like, okay, well like the sound or, or we don't like the resonance of it or how it, it was how we were able to manufacture it. Is there a quicker way to do it? So like this thing, hmm. the second they stopped paying attention to learning from it in one way, it became a product. And I think that's a like a potential danger mm. in the marketplace of like the second you stop trying to learn from that thing, you have just created a product, whether you want it to be a product or not. Like so in service of yeah. their next versions of ukuleles or next models, like this is a piece of data. Uh, but for a, for a collector, that's mm. like, oh, that it's. It's a rare piece. It's it's a product, you know, and it's celebrated, right. which is also yeah. in some ways antithetical to uh, the notion of prototyping not yielding a product per se, but but yielding yeah. information and experience and learning. Uh, so it's kind of where yeah, it's interesting to see how uh, your discovery efforts, depending on where they're going to be applied. Uh, they get viewed as yep. they say the outputs get viewed as different things uh, depending on who's looking at them. I love the juxtaposition of uh, prototype as data versus prototype as object or product. Um, those are two two very different things. You you actually said in your book, um, so you mentioned that prototype was prototyping is provocative by nature and you use the term fruitful sabotage what do you mean by that there is um there is an opportunity with uh, a prototype if you think about a prototype as an experiential embodiment meaning there's there's going to be something that happens yep uh and very frequently as opposed to saying like did it work or did it not work we would maybe want to rethink that and say, like, if it worked, why did it work? 
what do I know now based mm. on what I tried that I would not have known had I not tried something? So in the fruitful sabotage instance, there's, there is a benefit to using contrast so that you could see more, maybe more clearly like uh, the drama of a thing. Or you can just yeah, I would say the, the broad stroke behavioral effects are more apparent than some of the nuances. So um, you might, uh, I don't know if you're doing some kind of experience about helping people not feel self-conscious uh, or you might then say like, well, let's flip that and say, what would be an experience where someone feels incredibly self-conscious? Let's have them dress up as, I don't know, mm. a, a neon clown walking around on stilts in a downtown wow. area for an hour and see what did you notice emotionally? How did that feel to you? What, what, what was the connection you were having with people who mm. were, who were like watching you or looking at you and you could start to collect like, Whoa, I don't think I'm going to be designing a way to help, um, shy kids in class feel more connected with their classmates by having them dress up as giant neon clowns. Mm. But if I tried this sort of high contrast, sort of fruitful sabotage situation where I'm, I'm forcing someone invitation is critical in this point also. So in, in the sense of not deceiving people and fooling them and, and being manipulative to the point of extractive behavior. I mean, I'm not trying to, um, not suggesting that people, uh, willingly take advantage of someone else's sort of not even ignorance, but not un unawareness. Uh, but by having people, engage in an experience that isn't completely understood or isn't completely obvious, you, you allow this emergent possibility of things you didn't anticipate, behaviors those people who are the participants might not even know or, or have intended, um, simply because you, you may have, uh, I don't know, created some kind of zany <laughs> zany situation or some kind of experience that in itself is not beholden to being accurate, correct, mild, pre-formulated that, you know, there's value to that perhaps potentially down the road and saying, you know, should the button be on the right, should be on the left, uh, some of the more detailed versions, but broad strokes, there's a real benefit, I think, in having this um, notion of inviting people to jump into, uh, an experience that that yeah kind of smacks them into being in an experience there's there's no denying it it's like uh, you can't right. be intellectual right. about like uh i would say this way it it <laughs> the notion of holding a puppy is totally different than holding a puppy so like if you mm. you've got a dog in your arm and it and it's like you know urinating on you that's a that's a reality of, oh my gosh, I'm holding this, this tiny puppy. That's totally different than, wouldn't it be fun to right. have a dog? You know, one, one's like a hypothetical right. conjecture and one is, oh, it's warm and running down my elbow. Yep. Yeah, that kind of thing. In my head, I picture a treasure map. Um, because what it feels like you're describing to me is, that if solutions are a destination, then prototypes are kind of like the, um, you know, clues along the way 
to the destination, you know, and maybe there are many dotted lines that all all lead there, but you kind of need to get to the next clue. And um, so th- that's what the <laughs> the stilt the clown clowning stilt person um, says to me is kind of like this was a. a on the journey to solutions, this was a necessary kind of um, so step. So the question I'm dying to ask you, and I need because of time to like to to bring our conversation to a some <laughs> kind of crescendo is um, I I'm gonna. I'm going to attempt to get you to speak to lots of different parts of your book because I'll say two things. One is this book is incredibly readable. It's very accessible and um, it is, it has purpose at in Mm. all parts of it. Right. So to the extent that like even the book flaps, um, you know, have rulers and things built into them that are just very intentional. And I really love the design of the object itself, which obviously doesn't surprise me. Um, but I'm going to attempt to bring a bunch of different parts of the book together in in one answer. The question I've been dying to ask you is that we are in the moment right now post, let's maybe aspirationally call it post-COVID, but we're certainly past the scariest maybe uh, first couple of years of COVID. Um, And K-12 education especially, but higher education as well, are having these really big moments of question about what it means to be education post-COVID, in the digital age, um, what have we just been through that proved and disproved things? And I feel like there's this really big opportunity mm. to prototype and to not jump too quickly to the idea that um, I have two fears about the post-COVID education world. One is that we go back to the way things were. Um, and the other is that we go too far with ideas mm. that are just not well tested and not well prototyped. So what I was hoping you would give is your advice based on some of the things we learned from the book, materials, um, values of prototyping, uh, how to get crystal clear about questions, mm-hmm. you know, the questions you're trying to answer. If you if this was a room full of educators and researchers and folks who are really invested in pushing, uh, let's call it K to eighteen education forward, as a an expert in the space of prototyping, what's the advice you would give this group if they were all sort of suggesting to you that they have the answer that's going to work to, to move, uh, move education and, and the learning experience forward. I routinely come back to a disposition of let's try some things. I'm, I'm borrowing that a little bit from a educator friend and colleague of mine named Adam royalty who describes his family as a, let's try some things family. Something that you 
a word, a specific word in the question that you just brought up was the solution. And educators, K through 12, pre-K, college, uh, are often like part of systems that can feel inflexible and systems that uh, in a way almost like like lag one cycle. Like we're we're still focusing on mm. last year's solution when we're currently not in that context anymore. It's like, what was the you know, teaching to the test? Well, we're not paying attention to tests anymore. Well, our classrooms are set up that way. Uh, so is our curriculum. We don't seem to have the flexibility. So I, I think there's something in, there's a recurring theme in tone and in tools throughout this book that I was trying to illuminate as a way to, I, I hope, reinforce the intuition, particularly that educator, edu educators have, of trying some things before over-investing or pre-investing in a solution that they haven't yet explored, I mean, not even fully, but at all. Uh, the tiniest deviation I can think of, because it's related to COVID, upstate New York, um, this was immediately when schools were going to reopen with masks. This was like immediately post lockdown and the CDC came up with some like classroom um, protocols and the state of New York came up with some classroom protocols. They're printed out. Great. Everybody's got them. I wish I could, I, I'll find this report and send it to you, but it was a really cool paper <laughs> that was written by this group of educators who before school started, they implemented as a like a trial run, as a practice run, like a like a rehearsal wedding, like um, you know, uh, uh, what's that? Uh, can't think of the dress rehearsal. Thank you very much. Dress rehearsal. Uh, mm -hmm. They played it out. They got some volunteers, some colleagues, basically like, okay, you'll be playing with students, and they set up three different configurations yeah. that were like permissible classrooms. And they went through like the blocking of it. And they said, okay, everybody's going to file in. They're going to go out. And all of a sudden it illuminated things like, oh, wow, at the doors, there are going to be bottlenecks. And that's exact. We can't have students standing next to each other because they have to be six feet apart at that time when you're exiting and entering. And you're like, oh, mm. our classroom schedule is so tight on a 10 minute transition of like dump the room, refill the room in 10 minutes can't physically do it. So like, oh, that's, that means we have to sort of like raise the flag to all our teachers. You know what? You're going to have to add another 15 minutes of in and out time, which is not at all obvious, uh, even in the best intent of like the, the, mm. the, the best written prescriptions of how to run this thing. The issues with acoustics, they can't hear you because of masks. Uh, you've got to get closer paradoxically. So that might shift oh, well, let's focus on the outdoor opportunities. In any case, that struck me as, wow, what an amazing instinct for these teachers to say, I'm going to try this, even though this is the solution that's been handed down to us, so to speak. Let's practice with this. And with what we find, 
let's improve or let's deviate, let's modify. And I think the, the back to the book content, the notion of being clear with what questions you're interested in understanding, like what is a question you wanna ask and what might you hope to do with that answer? Not the solution, but what, what can you benefit from? What can you use routinely with the answer? Uh, that's not always, it doesn't feel often like there's time to, or there, it often does not feel intuitive to give yourself time to be as clear as saying, I, this is the question I'm asking. And it might even change based on what mm. I learned. So there's this try something, deviate, try, deviate. If you do that and approach prototyping from an iterative perspective, like I'm going to try a bunch of small things versus I'm going to spend one year coming up with the best prototype. That's antithetical in itself to prototyping. You're basically now designing a really big project mm -hmm. or product that you're further delaying in testing. So right. getting clear on the questions, allowing yourself and even forcing yourself to take these short cyclical chunks. Um, that's the kind of thing that really does align so well with what teachers do so well, which is get curious, implement, and and um, iterate or or adjust. I think there's a so in that in that way, I was hoping that the content uh, supported the current best practices and sort of the bravest instinctive behaviors that educators might have, even though it's not necessarily celebrated <laughs> or called out uh, in in their routine practice as being a prototyper, as being a curious person um, versus a solution seeker and a solution finder. You're like, yep, they always have the answers. Well, let's get really good at finding answers uh, as opposed to saying we have the one answer that yeah. will last perennially, which is uh, unfortunately not, I don't think it's particularly realistic. Unintentionally, I think you you put your finger on the meaning of the title of this show, No Such Thing. Um, that's actually what what uh, this is about, is that the there's no one solution. And um, yeah. the perfect pants, <laughs> which is in in the book, um, was was a moment where I, I, I read that. I thought about the perfect pants and I thought, oh, I, it reminded me what the the uh the crux um and the 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 first principle of the show was all about which is um to talk about innovation not as a solution but um as lots of answers that when applied in the right ways um make great innovation so um i could talk <laughs> to you for a very long time i i wish i wish we had it um this has been a, a terrific opportunity to get to know your work a little bit. Um, there are, I'm going to put all of the links to the book and to the rest of the books from mm -hmm. uh, D school at Stanford, uh, which is a wonderful little collection um, for anyone who is thinking about uh really any practice that is uh, forced to solve problems, which I can't imagine <laughs> that many that aren't. Um, 
uh, it, it's really a, a wonderful collection toward to that end. And um, I can't thank you enough for spending time. And, and I wish we had more. Uh, I hope um, I'm hopeful that I can get you back on to ask you more questions, uh, give you some some thorny uh, education problems to work on. And uh, and maybe we can we can have you back. Uh, that would be uh, a lot of fun. I, 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 <laughs> I look forward to that, Mark. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. A guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me. Mark Lesser, a learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.